Hi, this is Dr. Randy Bach. Today's July 6, 2022. I do a weekly coronavirus conversation, Facebook Live video cast, and it uh, goes on YouTube and some other uh, venues, Twitter and so forth. Um, generally, I try to talk about the facts uh, surrounding um, you know, how we've handled the pandemic um, and how we've handled people who speak out their own opinions about the pandemic. Uh, very often I get uh, certain feedback, which is ad hominem, which is against the person, the man, uh, against me. Um, what are your, you know, who are you to talk about this? And and people, you know, have Google at their fingertips. Um, I've had an interesting past and I want to maybe uh, have you all learn a little bit about this. Um, it's not necessarily going to change your lives, um, but I think it's reasonable to have it out there um, because you know, when you Google my name, Randall S. Bach, MD, uh, you'll find some um, things that you know seem quite unsavory, and I want to somewhat set the record straight on uh, what's what in that regard. Um, so I am a, a general practice uh, physician. I've had uh, I've been doing primary care um, since the mid 1980s. Uh, I graduated. I grew up in New York City. Went to Horace Mann School private school in New York City. Uh, then I went to Yale University, graduated with a, uh, a BS in chemistry. I was technically also chemistry and physics. I went out to medical school in short order, graduated in 1981 at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, I did uh, an internship in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, rotating. I spent a year um, uh, working out in West Virginia on my own. Uh, there was no commitment. To do so, I just wanted to get out of the uh, regular tract. I had been slated to become a psychiatrist, and I wanted to get uh, you know, kind of away from the grind of uh, academic, well, just kind of medical school, uh, internship, residency, and put some of my uh, hard-earned skills to use. Uh, I was also breaking up from my long-term girlfriend, and uh, you know, there were just a few things going on. So I spent a year in the, literally the poorest county in the continental U.S. Um, uh, amongst others in West Virginia, and saw a very interesting population. West Virginia is its own story. I don't want to spend too much time at that, but um, basically it was the kind of the purest culture in a sense at the time in the United States. That is the fewest people had migrated in, and the fewest number of people had migrated out of West Virginia over the uh, preceding few hundred years. And so I saw um, kind of very old style cultures, a little bit like what you might see from the Amish, uh, Mennonite and so forth in various of the hollers in West Virginia. And West Virginia also has the most roads per person. Uh, so people generally lived on the end of their own roads. It was a you know a bit of an interesting culture bit. I came back and did a psychiatry residency at Mass General Hospital in uh, Boston. Uh, it didn't really take, I probably had been sowing too many oats and I uh, kind of had a cowboy uh, independent aspect to myself and I didn't really acclimate well to Mass General. And uh, mutually, we agreed to part ways within the first year of my psychiatry residency, and I wound up doing primary care. Um, I rotated through a couple different places. Uh, I worked in some, again, some of the poorest places in, in Massachusetts. I worked at uh, Columbia Point, uh, which is probably the most dangerous uh, part of the state at the time, uh, Dorchester, amongst other places, South Boston, and whatnot, uh, Charlestown, uh, a lot of you know different situations uh, before um, kind of coming. Uh, landing on my feet at uh, my own place, ultimately in, in Revere. It was run by the uh, 
Lynn Hospital called Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Care um, in Revere. And within a couple of years, I wound up uh, kind of taking possession of the place, um, buying them out and so forth. And I ran my own primary care office in Revere for 27 years. And I saw all manner of primary care um, patient in that uh, duration. Um, but I was able, you know, running my own place, I was able to kind of tack this way and that and do things um, where I saw need. Um, so, you know, I, I had spoken some uh, kind of, I'd learned some Spanish. I'd known French pretty much, but I learned Spanish kind of on the fly uh, in medical school. And I, uh, you know, around Revere and Chelsea and Lynn, there was a high Spanish clientele. I wound up uh, advertising Spanish newspapers there. And there were other kind of niche aspects that I uh, did. Um, I treated obesity when that was a thing. Uh, when Viagra came out, I had, um, uh, you know, I wound up doing some of that. I advertised for that. Um, you know, I had to make money. I was, um, you know, starting a family, married, uh, kids, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had my regular primary care all along the way, and I saw multi-generations uh, in Revere, and somewhat a fixture because I'm on Main Street. I was right on Broadway, down to, you know, such as there is downtown in Revere, which is a working-class town uh, right uh, contiguous uh, with Boston. Um, and one of those ventures that I uh, undertook was uh, narcotic detoxification. Uh, not for myself, but for treating others. This is a time in the mid-2000s when uh, Suboxone was coming out according to the DATA, uh, Data 2000 Act, uh, Drug Addiction Treatment Act, um, under the Bush years. And the idea was to uh, uh, somewhat destigmatize narcotic treatment and bring Suboxone, which is a narcotic itself, it's buprenorphine, rhymes with morphine, out to the, um, uh, you know, kind of the addicted public but without having them have to run to methadone clinics and whatnot. Um, and I uh, took this treatment on, but with my own um, kind of uh, way of doing things, I didn't want to do a short-term detox, which I think were hugely unsuccessful. People go in for five, seven days or whatever, and they uh, go back to the same milieu, the same habits they had, and they wind up bouncing right back into drug use oftentimes. And I didn't want to do the forever model of methadone maintenance, uh, which is months and potentially years of treatment. Uh, so I came up with what I called, kind of, at some point I called the Goldilocks, you know, uh, like, you know, she didn't want too hot, too cold, uh, too soft, too hard. I wound up with kind of the median approach, which was a, a, about a four or five month uh, gradual detox approach, um, you know, probably less than a 1% decline per day, but always in the same direction of, of declining doses. And people had to be uh, compliant uh, in the sense that they had to be doing no other uh, narcotics or other drugs at the time. And I also wanted, I couldn't enforce, but I wanted them to do uh, better in their lives. I think that, um, and I still think that addiction is not a disease per se, but it is uh, kind of a way of being. Um, and in a sense, it's a trauma. Uh, breaking your hip is a trauma. It can change your life. You might die from it, uh, but it's not a disease per se. It's a, it's a uh, kind of a sign of other issues having taken place. And addiction is somewhat like that. And so, um, you know, I had a different approach to it and I wanted to detox people a lot. As it turns out, you know, Suboxone was kind of advertised and taught to us, novitiate um, uh, buprenorphine prescribers as potentially for detox or potentially for maintenance uh, without any um, kind of like enforcement one way or another. I actually uh, lectured for uh, the, the pharmaceutical company, Reckitt Benckiser, which is a British company here in the United States to get, you know, try to encourage other physicians to um, 
get over the hump and not be uh, frightened by Suboxone and let them know what it was like to have Suboxone uh, uh, prescribed patients, you know, people formerly addicted to, say, street narcotics, Oxycontin, heroin, and whatnot, um, injecting and, and or people from methadone to come into their own clinics and see how it would change their own clinics. It did change mine. I mean, my regular clientele didn't necessarily um, always enjoy kind of the rougher, gruffer, um, tougher um, clientele uh, from the methadone slash heroin slash injection crowd. A lot of them had, you know, kind of underlying psychological problems more on average. Um, I mean, it's, you know, all life is a Venn diagram. There's some overlap. There's some people who just happened upon, say, narcotics or whatever. But I think uh, people who wound up getting addicted usually had some other um, underlying issues and, and, you know, things they had to get over. So I gave them a kind of a gradual time to kind of reacclimate to life. And, and I, I think people are addictable in the sense that we wind up being addicted to one thing or another. I was playing squash a lot back then. I play tennis a lot now. And, you know, I like the, the runner's high. And I think we um, all need kind of that, you know, opiate-like um, pop. You know, some people get addicted to sex or whatever. I mean, the endorphins are named after morphine in a sense. Uh, they're endogenous opiates. Uh, really, it's the other way around, that the opiates we take out in the wild only work because we have had the template uh, for uh, opiate use in our own heads uh, because that's the axis of pleasure for us. Uh, so when we have an orgasm or we accomplish something, when we uh, run or win a race, um, you know, get applauded, we get a little, you know, jolt of, of our own natural uh, morphine in a sense. Um, and so my whole theme and theory was that, yes, people are addictable, and yes, they were addicted to the substance, and yes, they were uh, kind of doing oftentimes malfeasant activities, you know, felonies and whatnot to steal and, uh, you know, to this and that in order to get their drug, but it didn't have to be that way. Uh, things go wrong when you kind of violate your own precepts and your morality uh, in pursuit of any drug or any action. Um, so, you know, that that was the program that I had, and I ran it, I think, fairly successfully, and I was somewhat strict. Some people on the street called me Dr. No, uh, the James Bond uh, evil character, but in the sense that I would say no, oftentimes people wanted more drug, I would say no. They wanted to go up in their dose, I would say no. Um, I don't think that may be a bad person. I think a lot of people need structure, and I think a lot of the people who were addicted had kind of had an absence of structure and oftentimes in their early lives. I think people, you know, it's a term that I made up, you know, were somewhat underparented, undersupervised, often fatherless, uh, especially the men. And, uh, you know, people get into trouble without guidance, without uh, structure and constraint. Um, and, you know, it was a little bit of a trick to run it in co concordance with my regular kind of sore throats, broken bones. Uh, blood pressure, diabetes, all the regular patients and whatnot. And it became rather an active part of my uh, clientele at one point, probably reaching half of what I was doing as a physician. Um, why do I bring this up? Well, because, uh, you know, there, you know, th thus my troubles began. You know, I think I was doing uh, the right thing. I always did. And if I had to do it over again, I, I probably might change a few things at the margins, but not overall, had I been doing the same um, activity. Um, I'm going to read you something that's an article that came out in 2020, but uh, just to kind of cut to the chase, um, I wound up having a complaint here or there um, over the years from disgruntled narcotic addicts. And some of them were vindictive, which just, you know, some of them were, I think, personal based, that they had their own issues. And a couple of them were, I think, to get me, to get at me and to bring me down. Um, I, you know, I don't want to get political, but, you know, oftentimes we've seen that things come out about people when they are in a position 
um, whereas some people might not want them to be there or there's jealousy, whatever. Um, you know, for my, my taste, the, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, uh, I believe it was in uh, 2020, uh, was indicative. Uh, here's an upstanding guy, uh, you know, a lawyer and a judge and whatnot, and nothing was said about him for decades, and all of a sudden he's going to be in the Supreme Court, and everyone has all these, you know, kind of mysterious stories about him as a teenager or whatnot, and none of it was really verifiable, and uh, some people ran with it, and they made it lurid, and he's still haunted uh, to this day. Um, the situation was not quite the same for me because these were people whom I had seen, and I don't deny having seen certain these patients, but the stories that got told uh, were, you know, kind of beyond belief. And in certain instances, I literally had audio tape disproving the things that people said. And at the board of registration medicine, uh, kind of the state uh, medical board, uh, I was not believed. Uh, it, and this is part of uh, something I want to get at perhaps today, or perhaps in other uh, issues of this podcast, which is that, uh, you know, what, what we call woke or kind of this, um, you know, Marxist critical theory approach, wherein the, um, you know, social justice is something that you should be pursuing rather than actual justice. That is to say that your views or your actions might be discounted based on who you are. If you're from an upper class or privileged class, then you should be kind of taken down a few notches. And if you're from an underprivileged class, that must mean there had been some previous injustice perpetrated or performed upon you, and therefore you need to have retribution uh, even though the particular case might not warrant it. Um, I had a complaint against me. So anyway, so just to kind of get to the complaint part, I don't think I had an inordinate amount of complaints. I had no real complaints prior to this, um, aside from a couple of random ones over the years, and I had had no malpractice cases against me in decades of my own working there. I did uh, basically an English-style GP office. That is to say, I did an outpatient clinic, and I pretty much did all my work there, and patients need to be hospitalized. I would pass them off, like pass the baton to other physicians who worked in hospital or to specialists for that particular problem. And I didn't really have any complaints. I pretty much knew what I knew and I knew what I didn't know. And I knew how to kind of take the things I didn't know and have people see them who did know. Uh, that is to say, I worked within my means and capabilities and ran it as a business. I wanted to be successful. And I think people had a really good time there for the most part as patients. They've always remarked how well run the place was. And I don't really take credit for that, except that I gave, you know, I empowered my staff to be able to be good and I was able directly to observe them and have a higher and fire capability. So, you know, the, the very rare times that people weren't really up to stuff, they didn't really last in my clinic as opposed to some other places where they might have, you know, unions or sinecures or whatever, not be able to be removed from office um, or a job. Anyway, so that that's kind of a long preface. Uh, part B of my preface is that when I was doing this narcotic detox program, at any given moment early on, I had uh, the ability to write prescriptions of Suboxone for 30 people. And that number, you know, within a few years went up to higher numbers, I think 60, and then maybe it's 100 now. Um, but I only wanted people who were very interested in doing the detox approach to be on my program. So I had a $185 entry fee um, uh, for all patients as a kind of an administrative fee to let them know what the program was. And if they wanted to begin it, they would stay. And if not, I would refund their money right away and they could go on to say more maintenance type program, which might be in their interest. So I wanted to understand that you're interested in um, you know, people bettering their lives, not just getting off drugs. So getting off drugs would be fine, but in order to really kind of better their lives, they had to you know, do some things along the way that might be, have them be, you know, make them more comfortable within their own skin so they wouldn't be out seeking drugs for other issues. Anyway, this could turn into a long, long, long discussion. 
Um, but one point is that I kind of had more of a rotating uh, flow of patients. And so over the course of maybe the eight years or so that I was doing narcotic detox, I had about 1,500 different narcotic detox, detox patients, and I did about 2,000 different initiations of detox. Some of them were repeat customers, obviously. As opposed to the people who kept, who had and kept 30 individual patients for long periods of time uh, on maintenance. So the, the, you know, the analogy that I came up with was I was basically running a city bus, which had multiple stops. And a lot of people might stay on for the long duration of the whole trip, but some people got on the bus while other people, people were getting off. The people getting off, the people who really didn't want ultimately to do the detox might have found that 1% per day decline a little bit too stringent, or they were, you know, really more invested in doing other uh, drugs or, you know, not really, you know, they, they wanted something temporarily, but they weren't really interested or ready to uh, kind of begin a clean life, which is, you know, neither here nor there for me. Uh, I wanted other people who did want that opportunity more than they to be on. And so I kept the 30 number, you know, I, I was writing for only 30 people at a time, but over the years I had a higher flux of patients. Uh, the reason I mentioned that is, you know, out of 1500 patients, I had maybe uh, four or five complaints over that eight years. And so that's not really a high, but it's a very low batting average of complaints, but in absolute number, it was higher than many other doctors were encountering. Uh, we see this in the world of OBGYN where they pay much higher malpractice rates than other physicians because um, they go through a lot of deliveries. And if some, you know, one thing goes wrong, there's a complaint and it winds up being very expensive. So it's not quite, maybe that's not a quite perfect analogy. Um, but for the other doctors who are writing Suboxone, again, they were, you know, I, I would say 95% of them ultimately, or maybe more, were doing maintenance approach. So they were just kind of doing the methadone clinic model with their own, within their own clinics. So long story short, uh, the first complaint I had from a narcotic-related patient of mine uh, was a reasonable complaint, and she thought she was being tapered uh, too much, too quickly. Uh, she had some uh, complaints about my kind of, uh, let's say, forthright approach, which she thought was a little bit cold and uh, clinical, to, to use the word in a different sense, and she wanted um, you know, to complain about that. Fine. So I wrote maybe six or seven pages. Uh, I you know, talk a lot. I write a lot. Um, and the board at the time uh, had a different approach from ultimately uh, it, it got in the uh, early 2010s. Uh, so at that time, it was before the, um, the chairman of, of the medical board, who was there for about a decade, Candace, Dr. Candace Lapidus Sloan. And, and my complaint, my response to that complaint was heard, and the, and the, the complaint disappeared. Uh, thereafter, though, uh, was not the same. I, I didn't really keep up with politics from the medical board because I had no reason ever to. Um, but in 20, I think 2011 or 2012, um, I got a complaint from a patient that I'd seen only once. And uh, he made some rather outrageous claims about three or four months, months after I saw him that I had kind of poked him. I had thrown his glass in the ground. I had called his wife a bad name. Uh, things that aren't really me. I mean, I stop at stop signs. If my wife thinks I drive too slowly, um, I obey the laws, I pay my taxes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was 10 years younger, uh, you know, 40, 50 pounds uh, heavier and about three inches taller than me, about six foot three, big guy. If I had done something untoward towards him in the room, mind you, at the time, there were six or seven people in the office. Yeah, you know, everyone would have known about it. Nobody knew about it. Uh, nobody said a word after he left. He wound up not being one of my patients. You know, I think it was an interesting case. I remember it really well uh, because um, he had been disabled from his regular real job and he had worked at a prominent company locally and he had an excellent job. 
Uh, he wound up having some back surgeries and he wound up kind of going at the disability route and he kept his disability, wound up on drugs. He wound up selling uh, heroin, uh, working on people's houses, all that kind of stuff. And my question and query with him, which I remember very vividly is, um, you know, I spent some time and said, look, you know, we can get you, as I said before, we can get you off narcotics. That's not really an issue. We can get you off your narcotics, put you on our temporary, temporizing, temporary narcotic, but it won't really change the way you feel about yourself, which I think, you know, that has much more to do with why you're doing drugs than the drugs per se. I mean, obviously you have an addiction, but if you want to stay away from it, you have to kind of live better. She says, you're not going to take away my disability, are you? I said, no, that's not my job. I, th I think that you know, but you because you can you know spend time selling heroin and working on fences and working on your mom's house and doing all these other things. You're very entrepreneurial in a sense, and you have the capabilities physically. And you're a big, strong guy. And you had your surgeries, and you seem to be better from them. Um, that's really up to you to decide. That's kind of a moral decision, and you're going to make that decision. I'm not going to be tattling or calling up the state or the company, or whatever, on you. I think that's something you have to do. Anyway, you know, I wound up leaving the room at one point. He had to do a blood test or whatever. I'm walking by and he sees me um, in the room. Excuse me, he sees me walking by, he calls me and he says, and he's kind of sad. He, he says, Dr. Bach, you were right. I said, what am I right about? He said, I'm lazy. And he had this kind of confessionally wept a little bit. I said, you know, that's, that's okay. You know, the, the realization is the first way and the only way of fixing things. And we had a really interesting talk out of that. Um, I was kind of shocked that, you know, I mean, I, he didn't come back and he didn't come in for detox. And it was his letter was dated like four full months later. And he said all these things about me. And we had had kind of an intense time. And uh, after that, I tried to, you know, after this complaint came in, you know, I tried to maybe, you know, kind of be a little bit more aloof somewhat and, and have some of the things I say, I put on, on videotapes so people could watch rather than have me in front of them um, and kind of take, you know, kind of the, the pressure or the kind of the temperature down in the room. But I was brought in front of the board without even knowing what this complaint was, probably in 2013 or so, 2012, 2013. And um, when I read that letter that he had wrote, I'm like, wow, that guy shouldn't be a doctor. <laughs> it, just doesn't, it just doesn't happen to be me. I mean, I wasn't laughing at the time. Um, but they do this funny thing. They don't actually give you due process at the board. They just kind of spring this stuff upon you. And uh, and you're supposed to react. Maybe they want to see how you react. And there, there have been some complaints about from some of the kind of the defense counsel, the attorneys who represent physicians at the medical board about some of these really anti-due process techniques that they use. They spring things on you. They should give you an opportunity, as in most legal cases, to have discovery where you see what they're going to be presenting. And it has a little bit of a Soviet tinge, you know, a surprise kind of kangaroo court aspect. Anyway, this complaint kind of like turned my, my world upside down. And I understood it later by reading an article in 2019 um, about the medical board. Uh, it's in the Boston Magazine by an article uh, by uh, Michael Damiano. Uh, and I can't remember the title, but you can Google it based on that. And um, I can show a link about what is the essence of the board. And the board uh, had was supposed to have only single one-year terms for the board chair, but for the pretty much the entire decade from the early uh, 2010s on, it had a single uh, chairperson, this Dr. Candace Lupita Sloan, and she saw herself as a patient advocate. And again, this refers to my thoughts about social justice, wherein justice is going to be performed based on the social intersectional aspects of who's who and who's had previous injustices. So th this kind of became a big thing. And uh, I was told to, you know, kind of do um, 
you know, get personality tested uh, at various points along the way during uh, the board process. They kind of give you a carrot and a stick, um, and the carrots aren't that great. I mean, the carrots are that you get kind of have to bring a physician in to have yourself be supervised while you pay that physician to be in your practice at the time to go, you know, kind of uh, weekly therapy sessions, monthly group sessions, all this kind of stuff while you're supposed to be doing, running your own medical practice and be an adult and whatnot. Again, I had had no real complaints against me prior to this, and I think I pretty much knew and continue to know the bounds of what I'm good at and what, what I'm not good at. And I treated, you know, again, for decades, uh, patients within Revere uh, for primary care and then for this uh, shorter period of time for narcotic detox as well as other issues. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I, I bristled at that perhaps, and I thought it all kind of percolate out, the truth would come. Um, but I, I kind of had Chinese water torture of a few other complaints uh, as this process was going on. And I wound up going in front of the board for uh, suspension. Uh, I, to this day, I still can't believe not only did I, I lose the hearing, but I lost at 8-0. You know, I, I lost in a shutout uh, for a baseball game, wouldn't be close at all. And, um, you know, I, I thought I would get my license back right away. I tried to keep my office open. In the meanwhile, I kept staff on. And, uh, you know, the clinic was me at the time. It was a solo practice. Uh, it was a very beautiful clinic, but it was hard to keep everything going. Uh, I was told there would be a seven-day emergency hearing, and I thought, oh, you know, just this will be kind of a you know, feather in the wind and uh, flip away. Um, it took about seven weeks to get heard. It took seven more months at least before the decision came down. So almost a full year. It was, you know, I, I was suspended in January of 2014. It wasn't until November of 2014, you know, full 10 months later, that I uh, heard uh, an answer. And the answer was not in my favor. Uh, it turns out they had adjudicated on the wrong, you know, kind of le level of evidence. I don't want to get it's very technical stuff, but they should have told me, kind of like an automotive recall. You know, they should have called me back in and give me the, the right hearing under the right evidence standard. They never said a word, and I was out in the wilderness before my attorney, uh, who was not an expert in board matters, finally percolated everything through, and um, and uh, uh, we got a rehearing, but it was in, not until 2018. Uh, it was from the same magistrate who had, who had kind of like, you know, signed off on everything the board thought uh, the first go around. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember, it's not, I looked at the transcripts, I can't find it. Uh, but during that hearing, we had, uh, I think, six days in March um, and April of 2018. He leaned over the bench and uh, said, Dr. Bach, you know, and he'd heard all this kind of bad stuff about me. And he kind of leaned over, he says, I, I get you, you actually care about the individual patients. You put your heart and soul into this. And I said, yes. And I mean, maybe I imagine this. My attorney remembers it. I remember it, but I do not see it in the transcript. Maybe she thought it was off, you know, off the record kind of thing. Because uh, I really did want to find it and quote, maybe I'll ask him someday, but I don't want to go near anybody uh, judicial in the meanwhile. Um, long story short, I won that. I, I got basically, I would get, would have gotten my license back. The board put some in, impediments in my way. They made me make a new lapsed license application. They should have just handed it right back to me. They didn't. Um, we, I, I did what I could. I tried to get the license back as soon as possible. Um, they kept kind of putting me off. I wound up uh, having a case to the SJC, which is the Supreme Judicial Court here, our version of the Supreme Court in Massachusetts. And I was ruled in my favor in 2019. Uh, and they, they basically begrudgingly gave me my license back. They stipulated they wouldn't touch it for a few years. But in turn, they actually resuspended it uh, somewhat on a triviality. Um, I had a video 
uh, channel for my patients. It was all with their permission. Uh, I had them sign releases and everything like that. It turns out the releases were not quite up to snuff, but but people all knew what they were doing. And I basically had people in, in you know, doing detox uh, who were happy with it and, and showed others perhaps and potentially how they could get off um, um, you know, drugs and try to improve their lives. I had this very kind of seems silly, but I had five Fs, if I can remember them all. Uh, it was family, um, uh, friends, uh, faith, funds, which is money, and only lastly was fun. So when you get some of those elements, those five Fs back in your life, you have a bigger solidity. You kind of have you know, five legs under your table instead of just one or zero, and you're a little bit more sturdy in how you can approach life. And, and so it was a little bit, I didn't, I wasn't looking for more patients. I wasn't, I didn't do it as advertising. I didn't have my website or my phone number up on any of the videos. I wanted other people in, in the throes of narcotic addiction to be able to hear from actual addicts um, and our people formerly addicted, what it was like and how they could make their lives better and that they didn't necessarily need to be on methadone forever. And particularly when they're pregnant, for instance, they didn't need to stay on methadone. That people, you know, gave experiences what it was like to give birth to a baby you know, had to do with the withdrawal that you didn't want to do in the first place. And there were all kinds of other circumstances like that. There were, I think it's frankly some of the best work I've ever done in my life. I can't show it to anybody because after I was suspended, uh, that wound up being its own case. I think it became kind of like a, a suitcase full of money in the middle of the street. It became a, you know, what they call, I think, a moral hazard. Um, and it was irresistible for certain people to sue me once I was somewhat defrocked medically. And, um, you know, think that they had their videos with me. Nobody complained about videos while I was running the, um, the channel as a full-fledged doctor. But afterwards, uh, this case turned into its own thing. Uh, the board wound up resuspending me based on, on this kind of case that was brought by one of the patients who had been videotaped. Um, and that, that was eventually thrown out as well. And so I was given my license back in full um, and for the final time, hopefully, uh, in 2020. Um, I you know, somewhat had, had my legs cut out from under me. I couldn't run my own clinic and it was, I had already rented out the space I worked in. Uh, my clinic was gone. There was a tornado on top of it all. Um, and, uh, you know, so I've been trying to pick up the pieces ever since, you know, with some of the, the spare time that I've had, I've written these books I've mentioned. I have a book out, uh, Overturning Zika, and I've got three other books uh, in the offing. Uh, one is a general book, Compendium on Cancer, which I think is a really fascinating book, even though there are a lot of books on cancer. I'm going to get to that one. And I have one book really talking about my uh, theories about narcotic addiction, uh, currently titled Withdraw to uh, Freedom, uh, which I'm hoping to put out within this year as well. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to put that out because people will oftentimes say, oh, you are a bad guy. You were suspended. And so I put defenses out. Maybe I'll just be able to refer to this video in future. I'm going to uh, share with you uh, something that's in the uh, uh, Revere Journal, uh, which is the Revere newspaper. Uh, doctor, this is from December 2021. Dr. Bach vindicated suspension reversed. Um, this is me. Uh, um, it was a long legal process. Oh, so I had my, I've been there 27 years, had all of his original 2014 suspension claims reversed. It was a long legal process uh, extended by the Massachusetts Board of Registration. Anyway, it's a lot of what I've already said, so I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'll put a link up um, or maybe this um, PDF so you can uh, see what's there. Um, but, you know, it talks about the video case, the books, the gout, uh, my trials and tribulations, um, and so forth. So I'm going to, um, let's see if I'm just going to show it a little bit. So um, this is the article. Uh, there's, 
you know, there's, there's one other thing maybe I should bring up. I think it's a matter of public uh, record now. Um, I have a, a legal case um, in federal court. Uh, this is Randall Bach versus uh, the erstwhile uh, chair and co-chair of the medical board, uh, verified complaint for violation of the Sherman Act. And so I'll, I'll, you can pause this if you want to spend time on this uh, paragraph number one. I don't think I was treated fairly or well. Uh, there are times during my prosecution through the board that it was made evident that it was my ideas and conceptions about addiction that had me um, you know, treated more harshly and kept away from the medical realm uh, in this total of six years. Um, I maybe go down to paragraph 13 here. You can, uh, I might maybe make a link to this as well. Um, that talks a little bit about um, uh, the, the essence of treatment itself. There's no you know, medical law that says you cannot detox people. I think I did a very gentle form on detox. And there's been a lot of talk about how, what is, you know, the actual, you know, proper duration for uh, treating with replacement narcotic. Um, anyway, th this is a lot to, to get through in a video. Um, it's better to be read. Um, but that's, you know, if this case moves forward, there's no guarantee um, uh, because it's an unusual um, uh, statute. The Sherman Act historically was used against larger corporations. More recently, it's been used uh, for things such as uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, in legal terms, this is, you know, we're calling this the lifetime subscription model. We make an analogy to, uh, you know, Harry's Shave Club or Gillette, where, you know, they, they kind of give the razor away for free and or less than cost, and they get you on the razor blades. And the idea here is there's a lot of money to be made by keeping people on, um, on opiates within the medical establishment. And that is tends to be the way the medical establishment looks at this right now. It wasn't always the case. Um, you know, my, my idea and addiction of, of treatment uh, was really the standard uh, throughout, you know, all of medical history, um, well, at least modern medical history through the 20th century and into the 21st century as well. Even now, uh, there's obviously a debate about it. There are certain institutions and groups uh, that might come down and, and say, oh, addiction is a disease. And that's the disease model and so forth. But I don't think it's absolute. I mean, clearly, you know, it's, uh, you know, we had at least one president who was a former addict and had a disease, yet, you know, George W. Bush uh, conquered his, uh, at least his cocaine addiction and his alcohol addiction and went on to do uh, great things, whether you agree with him politically or not. Um, you know, he's done more with his life than many slash most all of us have. And that's by dealing, you know, he came, frankly, he became a born again Christian and he, he, did one of my five F's. He did faith, and he came to terms with himself and his deficiencies, and and found guidance and support outside. I think that's what we all need. I think you know we we think we can pursue individuality, um, but we we need trust and and hope with others. Uh, we have you know we form congregations and religious groups of one type or another, whether political or genuinely religious, uh, one way or another. Friends, families, uh, you know, sports, all this kind of stuff. We are tribal in a way. And, and we look to that. Anyway, um, what's my point here? Um, my point is that, you know, it, it's somewhat been in my um, uh, manner to say what I think, uh, whether it was about addiction or later about Zika um, or now about coronavirus or vaccines or whatever it is. Um, I try to give you the straight, honest truth. Uh, I am an imperfect individual. I've had, you know, probably some of the things I wish I'd done more carefully, uh, perhaps like the release forms. I should have had it shown in front of you know, multiple lawyers. I showed it to my one lawyer, and he's the one who passed on, on the form that I had. 
Uh, maybe I should have had a different lawyer. Maybe I should have had a different lawyer to do one thing or another. But you know, we can't uh, we can't micromanage everything we do. I was listening to a Steve Jobs um, interview. Um, he's I guess discussing in front of this Apple stockholders. You know, maybe 15 years ago, um, I think when the you know the iPhone was just you know still in his head, and uh, there was a questioner in the audience who got on his case. He says, "You want to do this and this and this." This is impossible. This you can't do. You're having trouble with this. Why are you recommending all these things? He said, well, look, yes, I'm not, you know, the best engineer. Um, I don't, I can't make sure that everything's going to be there. I have certain standards I want to see. I have a vision for it and we are working at it and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes over and over and over again. And it's only by making those mistakes are we going to be able to come up with something that's better than what we come up with to begin with. And if we just do nothing and wait for something to be perfect, uh, we will never have anything. So, you know, I stand by the narcotic uh, detox program I had. And again, I have a book on it. It uh, doesn't mean it's the right best thing for everybody, but it was certainly the right best thing for the people who benefited from it. I think it's a better uh, plan and idea than being on maintenance forever. I think it's a better idea to think that you have uh, agency over your life, <clears throat> that you can control things, that you can get better from your addiction, just like President George W. Bush did, uh, and sure many others you know. I don't think we necessarily need to be constrained by our worst activities. I think we can always aspire to better. And we, you know, frankly, are validated by those concepts and ideas. Um, you know, it's only by kind of giving yourself up uh, to the concepts around you, to, to noticing things are better and accepting that you didn't do perfectly, can you, um, you know, improve your life and feel fulfilled and go to sleep uh, without worry. Um, anyway. Uh, so from a, a position of imperfection, I uh, presumably I'm speaking to other people with similar imperfections. Uh, I just thought I would bring this out. Um, there's not that much tolerance uh, kind of for ideas that are not in the orthodoxy. Uh, and perhaps next time I'll talk about this a little bit. Um, and I guess all this was prompted by my wife's bringing up an article by Pierre Curie um, in uh, I think it's Real Clear Politics health section about the kind of the shunting off and the um, penalizing of doctors who have opinions that are different uh, from what is considered mainstream in any given moment. You know, it's a shock that today, you know, I, I, I have a psychologist friend who's looking for a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist in Massachusetts, who does not ascribe to this kind of gender bending, uh, you know, surgical approach, literally surgical approach to uh, childhood sexual dysmorphia, whatever you want to call it, um, and does not want to go the hormone or, or um, you know, mutilatory cutting off genitals or secondary sex aspects uh, for children. And we can't find any. We can't find a single child psychiatrist who's not on board with kind of this very, very, very new, very radical concept. And, you know, so is it science? I mean, nowadays you can't find physicians. You know, I, I was taking medical tests, uh, you know, CME courses, uh, where people don't use the word woman in, in the test. You know, they're using birthing person and stuff like that. You know, this is that's not medicine, that's not science. And so, you know, we either have, you know, an outward reality to which the sciences ascribe, or we have orthodoxy and propaganda. And lastly, she actually, my wife uh, Lynn, brought up um, uh, the great movie Death of Stalin, which is a, a satire, it's a comedy, but it's contains literally factual events um, where Stalin 
when he gets sick, he can't find a doctor because he's imprisoned all the good doctors. All the doctors who tell the truth and didn't follow propaganda, they're not around anymore. Uh, so he couldn't find a single one. He has to kind of go to prison, uh, go you know, sift through the prisons and find somebody who's been shackled up in order to actually give him medical care when he needs one because he's ill. Uh, let's hope we don't get to that point. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed this. Um, uh, please let me know if you'd like any uh, of the background information or you want to chat about it or if you have any other ideas. Um, but, you know, speaking from personal experience, uh, we need not to let the, uh, you know, social justice in inhibit with justice. It's okay to be social. It's okay to have justice. And it's okay to sympathize. But facts are facts. And you have to let the individuals uh, ride or fall, uh, rise or fall based on their own merits or lack thereof. Anyway, um, and that goes, frankly, too, for viruses. Uh, you need not let, uh, you know, extraneous factors or who's saying what cloud your view. The facts stand by themselves and the truth will out and uh, the truth gets a vote. So uh, thank you very much. Um, let me know if you have any questions about this and uh, thank you for listening.